0: Today's reading comes from James chapter one, beginning at verse nine through to 18. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed in the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Last year, our family had the opportunity to see the life of a silkworm play out. We didn't see the very start, but my son Jonathan was given this little white worm And he named it and he put it in a container and he faithfully covered it in mulberry leaves. Then after several weeks of feasting and fattening up, our silkworm started producing silk. Then it wrapped itself up in its silky cocoon and that was that. Now everyone we spoke to said that when they had silkworms, they didn't make it this far. And so we didn't really know what to expect. And as the weeks passed and the cocoon turned yellow and showed no signs of life, we thought that was it, thought that was an ex-silkworm. But then, a couple of months later, we were shocked to find a moth flying around the container. And so we dutifully took it back to the mulberry tree out the back of church and released it to see out its days there. Now, in our passage today, James wants to show us the life of a Christian, and he shares uh, God's wisdom about the expectations of life that Christians should have, uh, the expectations that Christians must have if we're going to persevere in wholehearted devotion to God if we're going to continue to have single-minded confidence in Christ to the end. Now, the life of a believer is particularly urgent for James's audience and for us and for all believers, because something that is common to the life of every believer is what we face in life, and that is trials of many kinds. As James has shared with us, the people he's writing to were familiar with trials, that they were Jewish men and women who'd recognized Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah, but they've been scattered, fleeing their homes in Jerusalem to now begin life in the surrounding Gentile regions. And their life as Jewish believers in those regions likely includes poverty and persecution that James speaks about later in the letter. I'm not sure what their expectations for life would have been when they first came to know and trust Jesus. But I wonder, would it have been this? Scattered, fleeing, persecuted, in poverty. And I wonder similarly what your expectations for life were like when you first came to know and trust Jesus. As you look at your life now, is this what you expected? Well, it's to believers like them and like us that James shares God's wisdom with about the life of a Christian, the life of a believer. Now, in verse 18, James shares with us the beginning of this life. Speaking about God, James tells us that he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, for believers, this incredible verse is where it all began. Um, we see God's generosity here. And God chooses to give new life to his people. Uh, He does this as people hear the gospel word, the word of truth. God miraculously and powerfully works in them to give them new spiritual birth. And this new God-given spiritual life is the same life that John speaks about at the start of his gospel when he wrote this about people responding to Jesus. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And that's how James also tells us the Christian life begins, being born of God through the work of the Spirit as we hear the gospel. It's this gracious, miraculous action of God that sets in motion the life of a believer. And then just a few verses earlier, James shows us the end goal of this life for believers. Now look at me, James chapter 1, verse 12. He says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And God's generosity in new births points towards the promise of this blessing at the end of life. For the believer who perseveres, God promises he will give them the crown of life, the crown of true life, of eternal life as part of God's new creation. This picture of of a crown comes straight from the ancient Olympics. It's not the crown of a king. It's the crown of an athlete, the laurel wreath, the gold medal, the prize worn by those who finish the race. Now, I know that we often ask about how someone became a Christian, how someone came to know Christ. And no matter how the story goes, it's it's always exciting to hear about new birth. But do you imagine this moment at the end of your life? Is it something that you anticipate? Is it something that you imagine? Do you imagine finishing well like this? receiving this crown. One of the enduring pictures of the Tokyo Olympics for me was the one of those two Australians in the final race of the decathlon, Cedric Dubler and Ashley Maloney. Now Ashley was in, in, within reach of a medal and Cedric was yelling at his friend, his training partner to keep going, to finish strongly, to take hold of the prize that he'd been working towards for years. And as we've started in this letter, I picture James as this kind of friend. See, James wants to assure believers of the generosity of God at every stage of the Christian life. And he does that to help us persevere to the end so that those who continue trusting in God, continue having confidence in Jesus, will be given the crown of life. In the rest of our passage, James helps us see the trials that we face in life as Christians more clearly within the bounds of this beginning and end as part of the Christian life between our new birth and the crown of life. First, James shows us God's wisdom in the trials brought by our financial situation. And then secondly, he helps us to dispel two lies that would keep us from finishing well. So let's take a look first at the trial of our financial situation. Uh, which he talks about in verse 9. He says, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. Now, James' instruction here looks at the spectrum of financial situations that believers might be in. On the one end of the spectrum are believers in humble circumstances believers with limited financial resources. And at the other end are believers who are rich, believers who can pay the bills and more. And James first addresses the life of believers down here in humble circumstances. Uh, People uh, would have looked down on them and people uh, would have looked uh, down on themselves even because of their financial status. And you see, these are people whose life, whose trajectory, whose motivation for life could so easily have been set by their inadequate financial means. Now, the wisdom of the world uh, offers lots of solutions to those in humble circumstances. Uh, Get a better job, work more hours, make more money. If you rent, get a mortgage. If you have a mortgage, use your equity. If you're supported by others, by the government maybe, then get free from that arrangement, get financially independent, and that's how you'll make it. That's how your life will be successful. That's when you'll have something to be proud of. But James, in contrast, says this. He says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. See, in saying this, James wants believers, no matter their financial means, to completely forget and dismiss the world's evaluation of them based on their finances. He wants believers not to be ashamed or embarrassed and not to be motivated in life by financial means. Instead, believers are to completely adopt God-given wisdom about their life, taking pride in their God-given status. James reminds us that if you're a believer in humble circumstances, you already have a high position that you can and should take pride in. In making this bold statement, James is referring to the same kind of God-given high position that Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Paul writes, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So as believers, as those saved by Jesus Christ, this is our spiritual status, our unchanging status. This is our high position. This is what we take pride in, that we are made alive by God, that we've been raised up by God, that we're seated in the heavenly realms with God. These are the riches of God's grace to us. And they're ours, no matter what our bank balance says. And on top of that, God's riches will always last longer than anything we have or live for in this world. And it's this lasting nature of God's gifts as compared with what we have in the world that that leads to James's address of those at the other end of the spectrum. Uh, The rich are those who compare well with those around them and who can think well of themselves because of their financial status. They're people whose life, whose trajectory and whose motivation for life could so easily be set by their adequate financial means. Now, the wisdom of the world says that if you're rich, then you can do whatever you want. You can have whatever you want, whatever your heart desires, because with money comes freedom, privilege, opportunity, comfort. And that's part of what makes uh, being financially secure so attractive. But James, in contrast, still referring to believers, says this in verse 10 but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. What James says here indicates that the risk for believers is that they could take pride in their financial status and their confidence could be clouded, their way of life could be coerced by that financial status, by the financial freedom and independence and recognition that money has given them. But instead of taking pride in our our financial status, whatever that is, believers are to take pride in our humiliation, a humiliation that comes because of who we follow, because we have complete confidence in the crucified Christ, the one who was despised and rejected by the world that values money. And one way this humiliation is seen is when we don't take pride in our finances when we see them rightly as fleeting. Because as James shows us clearly and vividly, not even believers can take their riches with them. They will pass away like a wildflower. And he continues this picture of the wildflower in verse 11. He says, For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Now, James isn't saying that the rich will be condemned or judged because they're rich. He's just reminding believers that earthly wealth and earthly status are temporary. They disappear. Flowers are just like flowers that flourish in the spring, that blossom and are beautiful for a time, but also die. We are just the same. That's the point of what James is saying here money and the status that goes with it won't last. Even within our life, our financial status can change, can change dramatically. We might be secure one minute and uncertain the next. Stock markets can crash, companies can go under, fuel prices can do what fuel prices do. And one day, no matter how much or how little you have, it will all be gone. But James helpfully reminds us that our view of life is meant to be informed, not by our financial status, but wholly and solely by what God has done for us in Christ. And so we can and should always take pride in what has been given to us, what God has made us to be, so that we'll be able to get through life and finish well. And so James says, take pride in your high position You are seated with God in Christ and take pride in your humiliation because you can't take it with you. You and I will die. Put your confidence in things that last. And in doing this, in taking pride in these things, our life is shown to be directed by God's wisdom, by the things that don't change, that can't change because they're secured by him, the unchanging God. Now, taking pride in what God has done is one of the ways that our trials come into their proper proper perspective as part of our life as believers. And this whole section is designed to help shape our perspective on trials by seeing them in the context of our Christian life. And you might remember at the start of his letter, James encouraged believers to consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. And as we saw last week, the reason for this incredible seemingly impossible joy was because God has made known the purpose of trials. He's made known the spiritual purpose of the many kinds of trials that we face. And the spiritual purpose in trials is the perseverance in faith that they bring. The spiritual purpose for trials in the life of a Christian is our perseverance, our continuing trust in God, as we turn to him in trials right through life. It's continuing, our continuing growth in Christ as we become more like him through trials and then reach maturity in him when he returns. Now, none of this suggests that trials are easy. Again, they're not. And one of the great warnings that James highlights for us is that in trials, we can be easily deceived And deceived by one of two lies that James goes on to talk about in these next verses. Lies that, if they're believed, can lead believers away from single-minded and wholehearted devotion to God. They can put in jeopardy whether we finish well. And the two lies share verse 16 in common. Um, James writes, don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. And either side of that, we have a different lie that we might get sucked in by. And so with that, that punchline, don't be deceived, The first lie that James warns us about is in verse 13. He writes this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. The first lie then is that my sin is God's fault. And the reason that this lie gets traction is particularly seen in trials because every trial, every external difficulty carries with it an internal temptation, an opportunity to doubt the goodness of God, an opportunity to use our trial as an excuse to sin against him. Uh, Let me give you an example. For, For example, when we're in financial difficulty facing those kinds of trials, we can be tempted to question God's generosity to us. In the death of a loved one, we can be tempted to question God's love for us. If you loved me, you wouldn't have taken someone I love away. And in suffering, we can be tempted to question God's justice or even his existence. If God was real, he would be dealing with this. He'd be fair. And the line of thinking goes that these trials are God's fault. And so these temptations are his fault. And so if I give in to them, if I turn away from him, if I sin, then that's on him because he shouldn't have put me in this situation. But James speaks against that. He, he shows us the stark reality that sin isn't God's fault. My sin isn't God's fault. And God may bring or allow trials, but James insists that, that God is not the author of temptation. That comes from us. Our impulse to sin against God comes from within. From our own sinful natures, not from him. And so my sin is my fault ultimately, nobody else's. And your sin is your fault, nobody else's. Now, this is a stern word, but to illustrate it, James de- describes the process. He describes the all too familiar process that leads from temptation to sin. And it starts with our desire. Now, we have all kinds of desires, desires that are formed in all kinds of ways, our desires to do and say and think, all kinds of things. And so far when we're dealing with desires, there's there's nothing automatically wrong there. Desires aren't wrong. Um, God doesn't punish people for having a desire. But temptation comes when we allow our desires to to lead us away from single-minded and wholehearted devotion to God. Now, the language of uh, of, of temptation that, that James uses here, it, it's fishing language. Uh, you can picture a fish swimming in a lake and, and they spot a tasty worm and at that point they're still safe. It's just a fish and a worm. But the problem comes when that fish is enticed and when it's sucked in, when it moves closer to that worm, when it sees that the worm is good for food and pleasing to the eye, that it will satisfy its desire. And so the fish takes a bite. And once hooked, the fish is dragged away. And so after giving into temptation, this is what James describes in verse 15. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. And this is the process from, from temptation. This is how temptation leads to sin, leads to death. Now, we don't have to look far to find temptations that are fine-tuned to meet our desires. And every moment of temptation comes with a choice, a choice to put that temptation to death or to give in to it. Now, I know it's not always easy. And the times when it's hardest to deal rightly with temptation, to put it to death, is when we face trials. It's at these times that we, we really want a way out. We, we want someone to blame for our situation. We want an excuse to give in to our desires without the consequences. And the easy solution is to give in to our sin and to say we're not responsible for it, to say this is just the way I am, this is just the way God made me or God put me in this position, in this situation. I couldn't help it. I had no choice. There's some of the ways that we try and justify ourselves. But James' instruction from God speaks against our excuses for sin. As believers, we can't be deceived by the lie that my sin is God's fault. Instead, as uncomfortable as it is, I need to take responsibility for my sin. Even in trials, even when temptation is common, even when it's difficult, sin is always a choice. Now, it would be easy for believers facing trials and temptations to move from the lie that my sin is God's fault to the next lie that James addresses, the lie that God is not good. And we can understand this way of thinking for believers, especially facing trials and temptations. And we can understand this way of thinking for believers facing trials and temptations because it's easy when we're in trials, when we're facing temptation, to think that, you're the victim, that God must have it in for you in some way. But as we look at the Christian life given to believers by God, that lie about God's goodness just doesn't stack up. And James gives this response starting from verse 16. He says once more, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Now James reminds us here once more about God's generosity, something we can be certain of in every moment of the Christian life. Our God is spectacularly generous. He isn't cold or vindictive. He isn't absent or distant. No, he treats believers like a father of dearly loved children. And out of his generosity, out of his fatherly goodness, he pours out every blessing on us, more than we could ever count. And the gospel, the word of truth that we've come to believe, is all about his grace, his generosity to sinners. And as the God who does not change, he remains generous to those he has saved. His attitude towards them does not change. He's generous even to those who've given into temptation, even to those who've fallen into sin. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us of something precious in chapter 4, that Jesus, God's son, is able to empathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So we're encouraged by this as we continue to face trials, that through faith in Jesus, that through trusting in his sinless sacrifice, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence and we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. These are precious promises for people facing trials, for people unsure of the goodness of God. James has shown us that in our trials, we might forget what God is like. We might turn away from wholehearted and single-minded devotion to him. But if we are ever uncertain about the generosity of God, we can look to his track record. We can look to his son, Jesus Christ, because it's in looking to Christ and the life that is found in him, that we can agree with James, that we can know God as the generous giver of every good gift, of every perfect gift. As we see the Christian life that he has given to us, we can take confidence about God into trials, into financial trials faced by rich and poor, into temptations, into the many and varied struggles that mark the life of the Christian in this fallen world. And we can hold on to this confidence about God until the end of this life, the day when trials and temptations will cease, when the only treasure that matters will be the crown of life, and when the only status will be given with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me lead us in prayer as we strive towards that day. Gracious God and Father, by whose power we are created and by whose love we are redeemed, guide and strengthen us by your spirit that we may give ourselves to your service and live this life in wholehearted
0: love for you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen.